0: This episode is hosted by Sean Falconer. Sean's been an academic founder and Googler. He has published works covering a wide range of topics from information visualization to quantum computing. Currently, Sean is head of developer relations and product marketing at Skyflow and host of the podcast, Partiality Redacted, a podcast about privacy and security engineering. Passwordless authentication is a technique in which users are given access to an environment without entering a password or answering a security question. This allows users to access an environment securely and protects organizations against attack vectors like key logging, brute force methods, and phishing. The company SuperTokens provides secure login and session management for your apps in an open core model. In this episode, we interviewed Advait Ria and Rashad Potter from Supertokens. We discussed open source authentication, security considerations for authentication, recipes for authentication, and the
1: future of passwords.
2: Adi, Rashad, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. So this
0: is both of your first time on the show. So I think it's a great place to kind of start with some basics and have you introduce yourself. So... Who are you and what is it that you do at
2: Supertokens? Maybe Addy, you can start. Yeah, so I'm the CEO and co-founder of Supertokens. And Rishabh's my co-founder and CTO as well. In terms of a little bit more about us, uh, so you know, we've been working and building startups for the last about six to seven years. Supertokens is a dev dude company. We do user authentication.
1: Great. Rishabh, do you want to introduce yourself as well? So as Adiv said, I'm the CTO and co-founder. Essentially been programming since uh, 15 years now. And a lot of web programming dabbled in several, several frameworks on the front end, back end. You know, that's um, a lot of useful information to build an authentication solution. Yeah, worked at various startups over the years and now building super tokens.
0: Fantastic. And obviously, we're going to dive deep into super tokens today. But before we get there, authentication and authorization is something that, has come up on the show in the past as something that you know comes up in a variety of different formats i recently spoke to the founder of permit.io they essentially have an authorization product but despite you know talking about these topics all the time even i sometimes need to pause for a second and remind myself which is which you know they i think they mistakenly name these things very very similar but maybe we start there what's the difference between authentication and authorization
2: yeah so authentication is knowing who is the user And authorization is knowing what do they have access to. So if you like take a physical example, so authentication is knowing, let's say you walk into a building and then knowing that, okay, this is Sean that's entering the building. And then that's authentication. And authorization is then saying, okay, he can access these rooms, these floors, these cabinets, and that's sort of all authorization.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And then I imagine all sort of modern systems, essentially, you're using a combination of these two things to both understand who the user is and then also understand what they actually have access to.
2: Yeah. So you always need authentication and then depending on the app, I mean, a lot of apps do, but not all apps require authorization, but anything with users definitely requires authentication first.
0: Right. You know, back in the day, not really that long ago, everyone kind of did their own authentication, but there's been this industry trend to kind of move away from that. I guess, like, what makes authentication hard? Like why not just continue to roll your own authentication?
1: right so first it doesn't always have to be difficult so you know if you have a hobbyist project or a very simple project not used by many users and you just want for example email password based login then it you know you can roll out your own in a few hours and it would work just fine right you don't need to worry about anything else but as soon as you're building a more serious app like for a startup or within an enterprise that you expect to be you know for b2b apps you expect to have high value customers. Or for B2C apps, you expect to go to millions of you know, users using your application. That's when things start to get a little bit difficult. And you know, let me sort of elaborate why. So you know, for B2B apps where each, each customer is of high value, you want to make sure that the session or their account is not taken over. And that, you know, even for something like email, password, login, you know, which hashing algorithm to use. For example, you would want to go with the more secure one, which is, for example, argon2 hashing. But when you do that, and if you sort of just Google, how do I add argon2 hashing to my app, it will give you code snippets for how to do that. But it won't tell you that Argon2 is a memory intensive algorithm. And if you just, if you don't have any rate limiting on top of Argon2 hashing, somebody can just spam your sign-in form and sort of crash your servers because there's no more RAM left. That won't be mentioned in those blog posts, right? Or even if it's mentioned, it won't tell you how to do those rate limiting. So things like this is what, you know, makes something even as simple as email password difficult. Another example, you know, from the user experience side, and this would be useful for consumer-based apps is if you have like magic link-based login, you know, you would expect that when a user clicks on the link from the email, they would get logged in. But you have to consider the edge case that, you know, what if the email scans the link for viruses, which, for example, Outlook clients do, then they would end up consuming the code in the token. And when the user clicks the link, they will not be able to log in, right? And, And that obviously leads to a terrible user experience. And it's an edge case that you have to Designed for. When it comes to things like session management as well. So for B2C apps, you want the sessions to be long-lived. You want to scale to millions and hundreds of thousands of users. You know, in that case, you want to go with something like JWTs because they are very easily scalable. But what if your JWT signing key is compromised? Then essentially the attacker can Assume the identity of any any account on a system, and that's obviously very bad. How do you prevent against that? Like, how do you build a system which automatically rotates the key without logging anyone out? So, for B two B apps, you want to make sure you follow all the you know check boxes when it comes to security of sessions. So, HTTP only cookies, CSRF prevention, all of the things that can you know prevent session hijacking. So, when you think about all of these things, then then you realize that okay, you need to be very knowledgeable about security to be able to actually implement these for a production system. And sure, you can hire like a security expert for these things or a team of experts to implement this. But then what happens when they leave your organization? And that's kind of the question about maintainability, right? You don't want to be in a situation where the person or the people who wrote your auth system have left and all your current engineers do not know how it works. And if you want to make changes to it, then it's going to be incredibly difficult and costly. So, you know, these are the reasons why people nowadays tend to pick an authentication provider because they've learned these lessons, you know, from experience of building their own that it's not worth it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you
1: did a really, really
0: great job of sort of articulating some of the basically death by a thousand cuts that someone kind of runs into as they start to try to build an authentication system for like a real application that's serving real users at scale. It seems, it seems like in a lot of ways, something like authentication is it has like this iceberg effect where. You know, 20% above the surface seems like pretty straightforward. You can kind of build that fairly quickly. But then there's this like long tail, which really represents 80% of the work where you're dealing with all these potential security issues, things like you mentioned, you know, the magic links and having uh, Outlooks scan those links and, and render the links invalid and so on. So you mentioned a couple of the kind of like security concerns to think about when building an authentication system. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? And what other kind of security concerns would a company have to think through if they were actually building their own authentication?
1: Sure. So this is huge. So there's, it's going to be very difficult for me to cover every single one of them in this, in this podcast. But uh, I'll go through like some of the most common ones that I've seen homegrown systems run into like some of the issues. So starting off with something like email password login, you want to make sure your passwords are hashed and sorted. And, you know, hashing essentially means that you're translating a plain text password into an ops funcated form, such that if you have the plain text, you can get to the hashed ops funcated form, but you can't go back. And sorting essentially adds variability to the output so that common passwords are not detectable either. And then another thing with passwords is like, a very common way of leaking them has been APIs logging passwords. So normally when you have loggers for your APIs, you tend to log all the request URL and the body and all of these things, and sort of store them in S3 or somewhere. You wanna explicitly not log users passwords in that. Another thing related to passwords is the reset password flow, where you, know, you wanna be sure that the reset password tokens are stored in hash forms in the database, then like, they're not sent to the front end. I've also seen that happen. And related to this is sort of the topic about secret management, which is your GWD signing keys and your OAuth credentials. You want to make sure that you're using a key management system for these things, that your signing keys rotated from time to time. And, you know, then you have like, as I mentioned, the magic link issue. And so there, there's like a lot of things. The devil is already in the details about what you should really consider as good security practices it really depends on the authentication method and the user experience that you want to build so there isn't like one answer that fits all here it really really depends on what you require
0: i think that's like consistent when it comes to things like security and privacy there's you know not one answer that fits everything which is another reason why it doesn't make sense a lot of times for you know a business or you know a new company that's like building an application to build something like authentication themselves when they could be focusing their resources sort of on what the core product is and what's going to deliver ROI because they don't want to have to kind of think through all these, you know, like you said, the devils and the details, think through all these details that are not sort of core to, you know, who they are as a company. And I like that you mentioned, you know, logs being a culprit for a lot of these issues. We see that all the time. A lot of sort of data breaches, data leaks are the result of, even if it's not passwords being in the log files or some other value that's essentially a personal identifiable information that ends up in, in someone's log file.
1: Yeah, I mean, even like if you like recently GitHub Copilot, right? I mean, it's not recent, but you know, because they scan private repos on GitHub, they essentially had access to secrets of people, you know, your GitHub credentials and like your Google credentials and all of those things. And then if you did like an autocomplete on your VS code, it would like give those credentials as suggestions. So that's a pretty bad leak as well. And, you know, that just goes to say that, you know, you have to be really careful about secret management as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I want to start to transition to talk a little bit about super tokens. So what motivated you to start the company and and I guess like, how did it start?
2: Yeah. So we were building this app, we were building our own app. And one of the things we noticed was that there were a lot of misconceptions around the concept of session management. So, you know, the way tokens are stored, the way they're created, like, even, like, in our opinion, like, there was a basic misunderstanding about using local storage versus HTTP-only cookies. And we saw it, like, being pretty ubiquitous. We saw a lot of big companies that went through hacks. So, you know, like, even, like, Facebook, Docker, GitLab, YouTube, Uber, they've all had, like, some version of a session vulnerability. So we just basically, like, devised, like, a pretty secure way of handling sessions ourselves. Like, you know, we built, like, a pretty extensive system. And then we wrote a blog post about how that system worked. You know, that we... So we implemented, like we did this thing called rotating refresh tokens that allowed us to actually detect session theft because there are only two ways of stealing a user's account. It's either through their login credentials or their session and session vulnerabilities were prominent. So so we devised that flow, we wrote a blog post, That blog post did really well. And that's sort of how it started. That's the initial exposure to it. And then we got into YC, like this accelerator called Y Combinator. And then we like spoke to a lot, like hundreds, hundreds of startups. So we, until then, we were only focused on session management. But at that time, when we started talking to a lot more people, we realized that the pain points were there, even with the authentication space as a whole, not just with session management. And then, yeah, and then one thing led to another, and then we started doing all of everything we do today.
0: Yeah, amazing. That's, I love the idea, too, of focusing sort of on a problem that you recognize that's important to you, you solve that problem. And essentially you realize from the, it sounds like from the traction that you got from your blog post, it's like, oh, wow. Like, you know, a lot of people are having this problem. (laughs) Maybe it's time to sort of build, you know, productize this. So there's quite a few, you know, players in the authentication space, some big ones, obviously like Auth0. What makes Super Tokens unique in comparison to some of these other companies?
2: Yeah, so there are a few things here, just like the, the thing that's most prominent is the fact that we're open source. And being open source means like, you know, enables like it's good for developers in a couple of different ways, right? Like the obvious ones being the fact that you can self-host it, you can control and manage your own user data, you know, it reduces the vendor lock-in, you know, if like tomorrow they arbitrarily change pricing, you can always choose to opt out and self-host, you can always build on top of that core product. All of those kind of things right so there's obviously the open source side of things and then there's like the entire architecture and the way we design the product right so architecture is fundamentally unique and and the reason that's important is because it gives you a lot more control as a developer or or as the application gives you a lot more control over the authentication system so for example everyone does pre-built UI like every authentication provider gives you a a UI that's pre-built but with most of the others that that UI is hosted on an external domain, like the authentication providers domain. Whereas with us, we give you the, the UI is native to your app right so it's native to your own frontend so you have a lot more control over the way like it's unlimited control over your end user experience similarly the the backend auth logic all resides within your api layer right as opposed to being on an authentication server somewhere so you can you can make those changes in node golang python which is your own where you in whatever language your apis are written in so there's a lot more control and customizability in addition to being open source and then finally uh, we give you like an end-to-end session management system as well, right? Alluding to like sort of our roots, right? We we started off as that. So we do that in the most secure way possible. We we handle all the vulnerabilities. And again, because others are architected as third parties, we're architected as part of native to your app, we also handle like all the front-end, back-end session management communication for you.
0: Is that a difficult thing to sort of balance between giving people control and also setting them up for success when it comes to sort of the security best practices that they should be leveraging within Super Tokens?
2: So in general, yes, because there are always trade-offs between control and making it simple to use, right? But in terms of security, obviously you don't, like the default is always the security best practices, right? Like we'll always only use HTTP only cookies instead of local storage, right? We'll always like the defaults will always have all of the things best. And if we, then like very rarely would we ever even give you the option to not have a security best practice unless there's a very good reason to do that.
0: I see. And then you mentioned that you're open source and you also support, I believe a SaaS based solution that, so essentially someone can run this themselves using the open source project or you can have like a SaaS-based hosted solution. So what are some of the differences, and I guess like how do companies typically use Super Tokens and what goes into that decision-making process of using the open source version versus using the SaaS-based solution?
2: Yeah, I'd say at this point in time, like the majority of our usage, so people do use both, but the majority of our usage is on the open source side. And I think the reason for that is like one of the things that makes Super Tokens unique today is the fact that it's open source, right? That like there's so many authentication providers, a lot, most of them are closed source. So one of the things that makes us unique is that, but yeah, and the decision-making into that process is I think things that I alluded to earlier, which is self-hostable control and manage your own user data, vendor lock-in pricing, you know, like you already run multiple services, you're happy to just set up one more service, you know, it's not a big pain, but you'd rather just be have control over it. So I think those are the, sort of the reasons why you do self hosted SaaS is obviously easier to get started so one of the reasons you do SaaS is because it's easier to get started and you just don't have to host the service.
0: Why was investing in open source like an important decision for for the company and I guess how has that impacted your business and product offering as you've started to build out this this company?
2: Yeah, so open source in general like aligns with a lot of like our values as individuals and things that we wanted to build you know like we want to be as transparent as possible you know we want to like keep the developer at the absolute center of our decision making right like all the best companies are built on keeping the user at the center and we think that open source is like like if you truly believe that then open source should be the the default choice because it just provides a better developer experience in so many different ways so i think some of those reasons and then so like in terms of like how is it more developer friendly you know it, it reduces vendor lock you know all the same reasons as we we're discussing and then there's also a sense of community. So you can build a community with a closed source product, but um, we've just really enjoyed building one with an open source product in terms of like how quick the feedback cycles and the feedback loops are. And then also like, you know, contributions, like now we've had over 200 contributions, like, you know, people have made over 200 contributions to super tokens. So things like that, I think, so that is in business angle, of course, right. That it's, it, we also think it's a good way of executing a company, like building a company. Um, it's beneficial from a business point of view, but even more organically in terms of like, just like the decisions we wanna make, this is just more natural to us.
0: Great, yeah, that makes sense. And there's a tremendous amount of value in open source just from getting your product in front of a lot of people to essentially accelerate that feedback cycle. Can you take me through the process of actually how to get started using SuperToken? So I'm gonna build out authentication, I'm interested in using Super Tokens. Like what's the process to get started and kind of get up and running?
1: So you start by visiting our website, supertokens.com. Then when you click on the documentation link, it shows you a few guides essentially, which we call recipes. So depending on what kind of authentication method you want for your app, you would choose that guide. So for example, if you want password to slogan, you would click on that guide and follow the quick setup section in there. And that would take you through the front-end and back-end SDK setup, uh, which is like a few steps uh, in each case. And then you have to set up the core, which either you can self-host using Docker or sign up on superdocus.com to get the managed version. And you're pretty much done. That's sort of the basic setup right there. We also have specific guides for frameworks, such as Next.js and Nest.js and Redwood.js and all of these things, AWS Lambda and all of that. So you could also follow those, you know, in case you're using one of those frameworks. Recently, we launched a CLI called Create Supertokens app inspired by Create React app. Essentially, what it does is it asks you a bunch of questions like, what is your backend written in? So Golang, Node.js, Python, what is your frontend? Is it Vue, Angular, React? And what kind of authentication method you want? So like email password or passwordless or like a combination of these things. And based on your choices, it generates an application for you, which has, you know, all those choices put into it. And you can, you know, you can use that as a base to build your app as well.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like it essentially is uh, built through the CLI building out the scaffolding for a basic application. Is all right. Yeah. So you mentioned these different recipes that you support, things like password lists, you know, phones, social user roles, and so on. What should developers be thinking about when choosing an authorization recipe?
1: So we classify recipes into two forms. One is auth recipe and one is non-auth recipe. Auth recipes are ones that create users. So for example, passwordless, email password, or social login recipes. And non-auth are ones that take in a user ID. So for example, the session recipe or the user roles recipe. So at a minimum, you would want to use one auth recipe along with session recipe. So for example, for an email password login, you would use the email password auth recipe and the session recipe. And then on top of that, you can add things like, you know, user roles or user metadata and, you know, machine to machine auth. all of these things based on what your requirements are. In terms of The complexity and the security so you know like each recipe is pretty independent of another so if you add more recipes it doesn't really impact your experience when using one of them the configs are pretty isolated and clear and defined like scoped to that one recipe so you know the complexity doesn't really increase the two things from a security point of view one is like the security from a developer's one of you like how many things do they have to do to make sure the security of the app is fine and one is the actual application security so we obviously designed all the recipes keeping security best practices in mind so regardless of the combination of recipes you use there's not much that you need to do there but in deciding which recipe to use you should think about use ux as security so for example if you're choosing email password recipe, the attack vector somebody has to take over someone's account is their password as well as the end user's email account. Whereas with passwordless, the attack vector just includes the end user's email account when we're talking about magic link-based login, So, you know, that's something you have to decide on your own for your own app, like what you're okay with and what you're not. But other than that, you know, we take care of everything else. If
0: I have already built, an authentication system so i've done like my you know homegrown authentication how hard is it to replace it with super tokens and what's that
1: process like so it's not as difficult as you might think we've had people do it in under one day but essentially it requires a few it requires two things one is the data migration and one is the code migration so when we're talking about data migration the first step is user creation so you wanted for example if you have email password credentials you know you loop through all your users and call the signup API and Super Tokens with the email and password hashes. And that would create those users and Super Tokens. Those would, you know, for, for social login, you would do the same thing, but with the social login user ID and the user's email. Those would generate Super Tokens user IDs for each of those users then you would go about mapping your existing user IDs to the supertokens user IDs and that's also done via an API call to supertokens so what this would do is if an existing user signs in with supertokens it would give you back your existing user ID which your existing application tables use so you don't have to change any of those and then comes the step of you know if like your existing users' emails are verified, you want to also mark them verified in Super Tokens, and, and that's, again, one API call. You want to transfer the roles, and that's, again, like, one API call. You want to transfer the user metadata, and that's another API call. So the data migration part is fairly straightforward. The code migration part is you want to follow the quick setup that we have for backend SDK integration, and for frontend, you can sort of, you, you can you continue to use your custom, like, your, your own UI that you have, but, you know, Instead of calling your APIs, you would use our frontend SDK functions to talk to supertokens. So for example, when the user clicks on the sign-in button on the sign-in form, instead of calling your sign, the old sign-in API, you would just do like email password or sign-in from the front frontend SDK. And that's about it. What this means is that the end user doesn't really see the effect of the change. They don't have to reset the passwords. They don't have to go through email verification flow again. And you can even make it so that they don't have to re-log in. So, you know, current sessions that keep, keep working. So it can be a pretty smooth experience from both developer and, and user point of view.
0: How does, if I have like a email and password set up today that I built, how does the essentially hash password that maybe I'm storing in my database today get Transferred over to Super tokens. How does that sort of synchronization process or migration process work?
1: So it depends on the hash of the like the hashing algorithm that you use. We support several of them. So let's take an example of bcrypt hashing algorithm. So you know we are, we have an API where you can just give in the email ID and the bcrypt hash, and it would store that as a user in in Super tokens. And then you know when you talk about bcrypt bcrypt hash, the number of bcrypt rounds comes into the picture. So you may have you know a different bcrypt rounds setting in your old auth system than compared to supertokens. But supertokens sort of takes care of that difference for you. So when the user signs in, we would actually use the, the rounds configured in your old hash compared to the ones that supertokens has set up.
0: I see. And then it sounded like, so if I have an internal representation of a user today in my database, and then I start using super tokens. The mapping between my internal user id and the user id representation of super tokens is hosted by super tokens is that right
1: that's correct so when the user so after you do the mapping and if the user signs in, you get back your user id from super tokens and even when you do like session don't get user id, you get back your user id from super tokens so there's not much you have to do on your end other than just create the map
0: i see yeah, so that's really nice from a migration standpoint because i don't have to introduce a new column into my users table to maintain the super token user ID or something like that. Mm -hmm. How does something like testing work? You know, if I'm doing integration testing through, you know, Selenium or Cypress, and I want to actually test a experience that requires login, how do I go about setting something like that up?
1: So there are a couple of ways. One is you know, you could spin up a Docker image uh, of SuperToken's Score, which is not connected to a database, and that uses an in-memory database per test or like per test test set, and use that as the auth server uh, for your test suite. So you could use something like your know, Puppeteer or any other tool that that you mentioned. And you know, when you call the login API, the login API would return a session tokens, which again would be handled by our frontend SDK. And then for you as a test writer, it would just be like writing a regular test, you know, however you would do it with your whole system. I see. You mentioned some of the
0: like front-end frameworks and technologies that you support, but what is the sort of extent of support on the front-end and back-end for Supertokens?
1: So on the front-end, we support all web frameworks. So we have a dedicated React SDK, but we also have a vanilla JS SDK. So, you know, anything you use on the web would work. For mobile, we support iOS, Android, React Native, and Flutter, which covers most of the technologies there. And we have support for Capacitor, Electron, Cordova, you know, the hybrid front-end applications as well. But you have to make a few customizations to how the front-end SDK works to get their support, to get working in those environments. But we have example apps for those. On the back-end, we have SDKs for Node.js, Golang, and Python. So we integrate with all the web frameworks within these, you know, languages And, you know, that being said, if you use something other than these three, you can always spin up a service which is running in one of these languages and then use that as your auth server, which issues a JWT and that gets consumed by, you know, your application backend.
0: Right. And are these all built internally at Super Tokens and then released as open source or are some of these community built libraries?
1: At the moment, all of them are built by us, like internally. We have a community built C-sharp SDK that focuses just on the session recipe but you know until we actually do that until we actually come and you know build the c sharp thing from ourselves i guess it's up to the community to work on that what goes into
0: your sort of decision making process about which languages and frameworks to support and kind of like where you dedicate your resources and prioritize these different languages and technologies
1: so most of it is, is to do with the popularity of the framework. So, you know, on the front-end side, we, at this point, we support mostly everything. So there's not much more left to do in there. But on the back end, you know, we have a lot of things that like C Sharp and PHP and all of these things. But the reason we picked Node.js, Golang, Python is, is just because one is we were comfortable with these languages ourselves. And also we felt for startups, which is sort of our current target market, these were the popular languages that they used.
0: So you mentioned startups. Is that your typical customer or there are also sort of larger enterprises that are using you as well? Or is there just essentially a range of different types of customers?
2: Yeah. So typical customer is more, you know, like the things we focus on currently are more the startups. So, you know, everything from like developers building side projects to early stage startups to series B companies, that's like the typical customer profile. But having said that we do have larger companies, like we do have companies that have raised like hundred plus million or that are worth, you know, maybe a unicorn and things like that. We do have those companies using us as well, but the typical customer is, yeah, is younger. I see. And we talked a little bit earlier
0: about some of the, you know, your decision making around open source and also the value that being in the open source community has given to super tokens in terms of, you know, generating feedback and so on. But you also have things like an ambassador program and how is, the community program for something like the ambassador program benefited or positively impacted your business.
2: Yeah. So the ambassador program was an interesting experiment. You know, we did that in the early days. We wanted to sort of see like how, you know, how like, so it, it ends up being obviously junior, like people more on the junior side. And that's, and that's interesting for multiple reasons, right? Obviously like these are people looking to learn. So it helps us like understand what are the gaps in what Superdoc, how we're communicating and how we're educating users, and things like that, right? And I think it, it worked pretty well. Like we did have like a growth. So it was like one of the first programs we ever did or like anything that we'd done at all in the distribution side. So it was interesting. I mean, even today, like people reach out regarding that program all the time, but that was like one of the community programs we did. I think we've done a bunch of others. So we do like, you know, we integrate with, for example, other dev tool companies, right? So like you mentioned permit.io earlier, they're like, you know, one company we've worked with in the past. And then like multiple others where like, you know, we do sort of like an integration and that sort of becomes the community program where we all like, where we leverage off each other's sort of communities and, and get everyone involved. So that's also worked well. And then, yeah, like in general, you know, again, we were very active on Discord, right? So like, uh our native communities on Discord, people who are interested in Super Tokens join Discord and we're pretty, we're very responsive in terms of support questions and things like that there. Yeah, and then we try and be transparent, you know, we try and create as many of our issues and as many of our like, things on GitHub, right? So people can track it, people can create issues, people can comment. So we create as much as possible, we're as transparent as possible about product roadmap. And like we have a product roadmap page, right? Which lists out all the different features we're working on. So all of these are like also part of community, like they're not directly like a specific program, but they're all like things that help aiding in that community.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think to do community right, it kind of has to be part of baked into the culture of the company. It goes beyond just, you know, single program or you know, it's not a feature that you just flip on and do a two week sprint on or
2: something like that. Exactly. Exactly. So you talked a little bit
0: about your founder journey at the beginning. And you I think painted a kind of a very like, you know, rosy picture of what you've been able to do where you wrote a blog post, you entered YC as a result, you raised some money, and now you're off to the races, which as a ex-founder myself, I'm sure that the actual picture is, is a lot more difficult than what you had shared. But as founders, what has surprised you the most about sort of building a company and the product that perhaps you didn't expect when you started down this journey?
2: Yeah, so there's this quote, right? Like the journey of a thousand miles begins with someone who doesn't know how long a thousand miles is (laughs) or something to that effect. Right. And it's actually like, it's a quote by the co-founder of Okta. Right. And um, by Todd. So I think that's like everything that, that encapsulates a lot of things that are surprising, right. It's like for most founders, it's going to be a lot harder and longer than you would have expected. Like you, you always expect it to be hard, right. It's not going to be easy, but you always expect, Oh yeah. You know, like in two years I'll build this massive company. And like in one year I'll figure everything out in two years, I'll be scaling it. And in like five years, I'll be like, this is like, you know, it'll be like the default that everyone uses. And that's like, that's sometimes the case, but like more often than not, that's not the case, right? So I think, I think like learning all of that is, it's not the most surprising, but it's also the most unexpected, right? Because you never expect that to happen to you because you always expect to be the exception. So yeah, I think, I think that's been like interesting. And and we've learned a lot from that, like, you know, just the number of intellectual, emotional and physical challenges that that comes with, right? Physical in terms of the number of hours, intellectual in terms of like the difficulty of the problems that you're solving and like everything is uncertain. You don't really have a clear answer to many of these intellectual problems and that lends itself to the emotional side of it. So yeah, so there's multiple things to learn from all of that. Yeah, I think it's great. The one
0: that I used to like when I was a founder was that they don't mistake a clear path for a short one. Just because you know know, the things that you should be doing doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. It takes a really long time to actually get there. So zooming out a little bit to kind of just, you know, thinking about the future of, authentication, do you think, are passwords ever going to go away? This is something that's been around for, you know, 50 plus years and, you know, are they going to go away and what alternatives do we kind of have looking to the future of authentication?
2: Yeah. So I think so. Yes. Like in short, I think they do go away at some point. Having said that, I don't think passwords are all bad, right? I think that there is a lot, obviously they get a lot of flack and for justifiable reasons, but there is some benefits to it, right? There is some value to passwords, which we can talk more about, but how does it go away? Like, what does that look like? So I think like something that I'm personally excited about or that I think is a good replacement is biometric authentication. So I think you haven't seen that ubiquitously yet because it's a very new development. So by biometric, I mean like face ID, fingerprint, like, you know, all of those kind of things. And that's getting more and more baked into the hardware products today, right? Like your hardware devices, maybe like, you know, 10 years ago, that was not true at all. Like five years ago, it's true. Now it's true for high end devices. It's true for most devices, but it's getting to the point where, where biometrics is baked into your device. And I think once that's ubiquitous enough, you'll start seeing a lot more, apps implementing or making that the default. I think it's a great user experience. It takes like half a second to like open to unlock your phone or like, you know, even my laptop has a fingerprint ID on it. And it's like, a, it's like very quick. You don't need to remember anything. It's very hard to spoof, right? You know, it's like someone can't really, I mean, it depends on the underlying hardware technology, but in general, they're built to not be easy to spoof. So that's something that I think could be exciting. Having said that, that is in a way its own password, right? Like it depends on the definition of password because that is still a password, right? That is still something that's like uniquely identifiable that's being sent over the server to identify you. But yeah, I mean, that's that's separate.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think by password, I mean, I would love to get it so that my mom is no longer writing her passwords down in a notepad like she keeps in the kitchen (laughs) because she can't remember her passwords. But yeah, I agree. I think biometrics is something that has a tremendous amount of potential and the fact that everyone, you know, most people now, at least in the developed world are carrying around essentially a computer in their pocket that can read their fingerprint or do face ID in combination with things like secure enclave on the device, you can build a pretty secure system that's also really user friendly and a great user experience. Yeah, for sure. What's kind of next for super tokens? You mentioned, you know, you have a public roadmap. Are there certain items that you're working on that you would like to highlight and share?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, one thing we work on all the time is like the developer experience and people talk about features all the time, but like, you know, we think that to do developer experience correct is like, you've got to always roadmap it in. There's always something to build there. That's exciting, right? So I think we spoke earlier about the CLI tool. So that was like a project. We built the CLI tool, you know, whether it's like a lot of like effort is now going into like this docs restructuring and like, you know, redoing the navigation and architecture of our docs. So there's like always like some quote unquote feature that's being worked on in terms of the developer experience. Besides that, in the more typical traditional sense, you know, we're working on multi-tenancy, which is like the ability to have like multiple user pools with one instance of super tokens, or if you are a business and you have multiple customers, then you allow each of those customers to sign up to your app in their own individual way, right? So we're allowing you to be able to do those things. Like we're adding the features for that, you know, so we have 2FA, but we don't like, there's a particular form of 2FA called TOTP, right? Like what you see with the Google Authenticator app, right? So adding support for that. Then there's like adding like features to our user management dashboard. There's this feature called account linking, which is a lot more complicated than it sounds, but it's like, it's like a user experience thing. So we're working on all of those things. Yeah, it's a lot to keep up on, I imagine.
0: And I love that you're sort of carving out space to focus on developer experience. That's something that's you know very core to my interest and expertise as well. And like I mentioned with community, I think it's not something, it's not a feature, it's like part of, of the culture of the company to do that right. As we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to share?
1: Yeah, sure. There's this one interesting library that we built earlier. And, and this is just one of the things that surprised us in the, you know, while we were going building super tokens. It's called browser tabs lock. Essentially, it's meant for locking, like sort of doing locking across tabs on your browser. And this is useful for you know in session management when calling the refresh API. So you know you want to make sure you call the refresh API just once in synchronous with all the tabs that the user might have opened to prevent some false positives when it comes to session hijacking. And as it turns out, this library was then used by all other providers as well, which was totally unexpected for us. And and that was just a, a cool trivia you know about Superlookens that we have this thing.
2: That's great, yeah. That library has like six hundred thousand weekly downloads now because it's like used by by everyone. <laughs> wow! Well, oh, okay. well, congratulations! That, that feels like a a really strong
0: positive signal for what you guys are are doing and in the investments that you're making as a company. So I want to thank you, you know, Adi and Rashav for coming on the show. You definitely piqued my interest. Next time I'm you know building out a product where I need. Authentication or a side project, even I definitely gonna check out Super Tokens. But best of luck with continuing to grow the company. I think it sounds really, really interesting, really exciting.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much, Sean. And and you know where to find us supertokens.com Discord. You know, if you ever want to join the community, talk to us. You know, we, we love talking to people. So feel free to join that. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so thank much. You so much.
1: Bye. Bye.